Welcome to the You on the Camino de Santiago podcast, Season 3. This podcast is for and about people getting ready for their first ever pilgrimage on the Camino de Santiago in Spain, France, and Portugal. With your host, Camino guide and longtime pilgrim, Nancy Reynolds of the Camino Experience. it safe for a woman to walk the Camino alone? How can women protect themselves when on the Camino? These are questions that come up regularly online, in the Camino Facebook groups, and on the online forums. Hi, this is Nancy, and in this episode, we are going to hear from someone who walked the Camino this year and can give us some first-hand examples of the concerns women face on the trail. You may remember Kathy from Season 1, Episode 11, and Season 2, Episode 13. She was heading out in late May to take on the challenging Camino del Norte from Irún. Kathy's motto is, live simply and do cool stuff. (laughs) And she did just that. I think you know what word I left out there. In addition to talking about women's safety on the trail, we get into the role everyone plays in keeping pilgrims safe. And Kathy also shares with us the real story on staying in the albergues on the Camino. Woven in there are stories of how the Camino provides for pilgrims and what it felt like to reach Santiago after nearly 40 days of walking. If you missed Kathy's two previous episodes, You might want to listen to those before you listen to this one for some context. Season 1, Episode 11, Season 2, Episode 13. We will get to Kathy in a few moments, but first I need to mention a few things. First, if you have just found this podcast and you jumped right into the most recent episode without checking out Seasons 1 and 2, I want to recommend that you go back to the very beginning, to Season 1, Episode 1, and find out what this podcast is all about. My goal is to walk with you through the entire Camino planning process, and we do that starting with Season 1. Next, if you signed up for my email list to get my top 10 Camino tips that don't usually show up on the top 10 lists, or my Camino Planning Roadmap, and you haven't been receiving emails from me, there's one critical step that got missed, and that is to open the email I sent and download the tips or roadmap. When you click on the button in that first email, that confirms your subscription and gives me permission to send you emails. I can't send you emails without your say-so, which I think is a good system, but I don't want you to miss out on any of the great Camino content I send. If you think you signed up for my email list, but you aren't receiving my emails, there are two things you can do about it. One, you can search your inbox or spam folder for emails from me. They would be from nancy at thecaminoexperience.com. 
That's the email address my emails come from. Or two, you can simply subscribe again by requesting the top 10 tips using the link in the show notes or on the homepage of my website, thecaminoexperience.com. And then after you sign up, be sure to check your inbox or spam folder and click through the link in the email I send you. Easy. And finally, I have a reminder for you that coming up this Friday and Saturday, I am hosting two free identical webinars for everyone on my email list. Those are on Friday, September 15th at 5 p.m. California time and Saturday, September 16th at 9 a.m. California time. Now, I know that most of my listeners are not in my time zone, so be sure to check the show notes or do an online search for the correct time in your time zone. In the webinar, I'm going to answer the question of how long does it take to walk the Camino? First, in a generic way. But then I'm going to give you a few simple tools to answer that question for yourself. And I will also be introducing my new DIY Camino planning program. That one is for you if you are staring down the many questions you have to answer and the many tasks you have to complete to get ready to walk the Camino. And if you are maybe feeling a bit overwhelmed or just a hint of FOMO, you know, the fear of missing out, that you might be missing something important. But this program is for people who want all of that but don't want to join me in one of my groups on the trail in May and September 2024. Now, you really do have to be on my email list to attend one of the webinars because that is how you will get the link for the Zoom calls. So again, if you think you signed up for my email list, but you haven't been getting my emails, they come every Friday. Check your spam folder or just sign up again using the link in the show notes or on my website, thecaminoexperience.com. And definitely click the button in the confirmation email that comes right after you sign up. Very important. If you are listening to this episode after mid-September 2023, do still get on my email list so I can keep you updated on the free webinars and other ways I assist first-time pilgrims. TheCaminoExperience.com Okay, let's find out how Kathy's walk went on the Camino del Norte. I'm here with Kathy Mitchell from Michigan, who walked the Camino del Norte. And I had the pleasure of following along on her journey on Facebook. And she's going to share with us how that went. So let's say hello to Kathy. Hi, Kathy. How are you? I'm great. How are you, Nancy? Yeah, doing good. I have so been looking forward to this because when you follow someone on Facebook, you get you get bits and pieces and you were so generous in posting your stories and your photos and all of that. But I feel like I had sort of a behind the scenes view from before you went to know what you were, uh, why you were going and what you were hoping to get out of the Camino. And so I was watching your Facebook posts from that lens. And so I'm so eager to hear how it went. Well, it was, um, 
I don't feel like I'm the same person. I feel like the person that left with all the the fear of the language barrier and the fear of being lost and the a lot of fear. I left that person in Spain. Oh, wow. I left that person in Spain. I, it was the most freeing, challenging, beautiful, miserable, perfect combination of just everything. And I am so glad. I know when we talked before, you asked about my expectations and I told you I didn't want to have any um, because I think that's what sets you up for disappointment. I don't think, even if I went back today, even after all my experience, I know I could not go with expectations because you can't plan, imagine, prepare for what you experience there. You find a depth of yourself that you didn't know existed or you forgot about. Yeah, it's, it was amazing. So what you're describing are the things that you can't see in a YouTube video about the Camino. Yes. I mean, you can, some of it is you can see, you can see how challenging some of the paths are. You can see the steep inclines. You can see, you know, cuts and bruises and blisters, you know, you can see those things, but you can't see what you've experienced that we've gone through to get to those places and then get past those places. I mean, mm-hmm. that, that's an internal thing. And everybody, every single person deals with it differently. So when you say get to those places and get past those places, I'm thinking maybe you're not talking about points on a map. No, no, not so much points on a map. I mean, overcoming obstacles, finding strength to carry on, finding the presence of self to get yourself back on track when you have temporarily misplaced yourself, you know, and then the physical, what, what can physically happen to you can happen. And there's not even a point on the map. It's just, it happens. Would you say that again? So some of the things happen in a blink of an eye. So -hmm. there's not like a spot on the map or it's a realization that comes over you. And all of a sudden you don't know when the change happens or how it happened. You just know it happened. You know, it's something that you feel like emotional baggage fell away or physical strength just appeared, or there's a sense of calm that comes over you. And you don't know when it happened because a few hours ago you were in tears, miserably lost, asking yourself, what drug you were on to even make you want to do this in the first place and what's wrong with the people around you to let you do it (laughs) (laughs) it's the what was I thinking moment and what were they thinking moment who doesn't tell you about this stuff (laughs) (laughs) they forgot to put this in the brochure right that wasn't written down on the map (laughs) (laughs) but then all like you just go from that chaotic desperate, painful place. And all of a sudden there's just peace. I mean, and just through the walking and through the the seeing and the experiencing, the sights, the smells, the sounds, the people that you meet, the other stories that you hear, you all of a sudden find yourself calm and at peace. And it's almost like you don't remember 
what triggered that episode in the past, but it's gone. And I'll, some of it is like just lifelong burdens gone. It, it's so hard to put into words. Well, it is hard to put into words. And the thing that I want to emphasize is, is you're describing your experience. Right. It's uniquely yours. And so someone listening to this conversation might think, oh, I want that. I'm going to go get that on the Camino. And it's like when you watch a YouTube video and you see these wonderful pilgrim meals and the beautiful terrain and the sun is shining and, and there are puffy clouds in the sky. And you think, I'm going to go walk the Camino because I want that experience. But you had your experience and you worked for it. I remember the lead up to this. You worked for this. I did. And I tell you what, I could not have. I mean, I was hoping for blue skies and puffy clouds <laughs> and, you know, beautiful views and pilgrim meals. But if I had gone into it thinking that every day was going to be like that, or every albergue I stayed in was going to have a communal meal, and people were going to come together and eat and drink and be merry, I would have been disappointed because it wasn't always like that. Mm. I got chills when you said that. When I started on the Norte, it was before high season. So some of the albergues were just opening. Some of them weren't open yet. And the very first one that I stayed at didn't even have a kitchen. Mm. So you had to go into town. But we bonded. Like there's people there that bonded and we sat and had meals and shared stories. And we were still on that first day, first night of the Camino rush. But then further on down, there were Camino meals. There was an albergue that was a Donatillo that an Italian made a beautiful lasagna meal with toasted bread and homemade jam. And, you know, so there was that. And then we played 20 questions afterwards. So there were days like that. And then there were days where I was staying and there was only two other people and everybody was just passed out because it was after a long, long day. Everybody was just passed out. I don't even know if we ate dinner. You have to choose where your energy is going to get your pajamas on or to eat. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> mm, so let's get some context here. So uh, some of the my listeners will probably have listened to your previous two episodes, one in season one and one in season two. And I'll have the exact episodes in the show notes so people can go back and hear the before. But let's get some context. Would you just start us from, I walked the Camino del Norte starting from here on this date, and it took me this long to get to Santiago de Compostela. Sure. So I started in Irún, and I started on May 31st. And I didn't do the big stretch to San Sebastian the first day. I stopped in Pasaki. I think that's how you say it, but depending on if you're Basque, Spanish, or English, there are a few different ways. Pasaki is what I landed on. And that was my first day and my you know first experience. It took me until the 7th of July to get to Santiago. Okay. Initially, I was going to do the Norte and then from Oviedo take the Primitivo down, but by the time I got to the split, I had fallen in love with the northern coast. And there were so few people. I mean, it was not crowded. It wasn't rushed until you got into the big cities. 
But then I heard everyone deciding to take the Primitivo, and I thought, I'm staying on the coast. And by then, I knew, I had heard so many people talk about uh, Cathedral Beach, which is on the, the coast further on, I had to go there. So I only had four days that I stopped and stayed over. No, actually three days that I stopped and stayed over in a town. So it's like saying just one day I stayed multiple days. So you had you had three zero kilometer days where you didn't walk? Yeah, I had three zero kilometer days. Out of, uh, that's like 40 days, 42 days? 42 days, yes. Great. Okay. I did have a few 30 kilometer days. Tell us about the route. Tell us about the Norte. See, see, let's hear your sales pitch on the Norte. Okay. So the Norte is beautiful and it is so challenging. A lot of people start in Bilbao and I never understood that when I was reading all the posts, it's like, oh, we're going to start in Bilbao. And there was a distinct difference when people were describing doing the Norte from Bilbao and doing the Norte from Irun. Hmm. The people that started in Irun, super challenging, a lot of hills, the Basque country. So if you don't start in Bilbao, you are out of Basque country. Um, or if you start in Bilbao, you've started past. If you're going to do the Norte people, do it from Irun. Do the hard part. Do the you know big inclines. Just pace yourself. Be patient. Be kind to yourself. Know that it doesn't matter what you hike at home. If you hike three miles an hour at home, you'll hike maybe, you'll be lucky if you do two miles an hour. The inclines are steep. You're exposed a lot of the time, but the views are amazing. And of all the people in Spain, the Basque people are the kindest, most friendly, most generous people. And Honestly, if it wasn't for one of them, I think my communal would have been over on day four. Oh, can you tell us that story? There's a lot of cobblestone. So you're going up and down steep inclines on wet, slippery rocks in some places. Hmm. I rolled my foot and I actually dislocated a bone in the top of my foot. Ow. I was five miles from the next town. And I walked on it all the way to that town, got there, sat down in the little shop. We still had another four kilometers to go to our, our albergue. So just like two and a half miles, but I just couldn't do it. Um, we stopped at this little town and I had a sandwich. And it's wonderful when you go into these little markets, the meat's hanging, the cheese is in the key. So when you order a sandwich, everything is made fresh right in front of you. And it's delicious. The food in Spain is magnificent but anyhow this shop owner knew I was in pain and I had met a woman from Belgium that spoke Spanish she was, she why I was sitting outside eating she related that I had hurt my foot he closed his store closed his store got his van and drove us to our albergue wow drove us right to the front door of the albergue so that was the kindest thing. And I think if I had walked any further on it, it wouldn't have been able to be fixed. But the second part of this is one of the, my fellow pilgrims staying in the albergue came up to me and he went, hi, my name is Martin. I'm from Germany and I'm a physio. 
let me look at your foot. And he was able to, so the Hospitalera got me a bucket of ice water. So I'm soaking my foot. Martin is like trying, because my leg was just, all my tendons, everything was just tight. My calf was like a knot just from walking that far. But he was able to massage it all out. And you know, everybody, all the other pilgrims are gathered around. They're like pouring me wine while he's hitting pressure points and everyone's laughing about me going, oh my God, you know, when he would hit the right spot. But then he popped my bone back in, taped my foot up. By this time I'm drinking wine out of the bottle. <laughs> it was painful. But the next morning I woke up, I could put all my weight on my foot. Martin made sure that my boot was tied right, showed me how to retape my foot and I continued. Wow. But if it wasn't for that gentleman at the shop and him, I think I would have been done. Wow. So it's just generosity. Yeah. And I think that's an example of when people say the the Camino provides. Absolutely. Absolutely. And there's an element to it also that we sometimes overlook. And that is that in order for the Camino to provide, we have to receive it. We have to be open for people to give to us and to be of service to us. And that's one of the biggest things that I learned in Spain because I have such a hard time. Before I left, I had a very hard time accepting help. And it was nearly impossible for me to ask for it. Wow. And to accept the, like, I didn't even argue with the man when he had a shop. I just, like, literally burst into tears and thanked him. He wouldn't take any money. By the way, all the wine was provided by him. I found out later. He dropped off a little case of wine to the hospital for us. <laughs> but to accept that and then to, if, if somebody had come up before and said, oh, hey, I'm a doctor, I can look at that. I'd be, oh, no, I'm fine. Mm-hmm. And I'd be in agony and I would just stay in agony. But it's like, no, I, I learned through that, that time and some others to accept and then even ask. I love that you caught yourself and you acknowledge that that's not who you are now. You used to not be able to accept help. You used to not be able to ask for help, but you caught that when you described yourself, you are now someone else. I am very much so someone else. It reminds me of in our last two conversations, when you talked about when you went to Yellowstone and you got to be who you really were because they didn't know you, they didn't know your history and they didn't have any expectations of who you should be and what you should say yes to. Did you find that to be the case on the Camino? Absolutely. And even more so Mm. because even in Yellowstone, I had a job. Mm -hmm. I had a job to do there. I had a schedule. I had responsibilities. So where people didn't know me and I could be the person I needed to be and wanted to be and discover like who that person was on the Camino. I had no schedule because as you know, I didn't plan how long it was going to take me. I just knew that in the end I had to fly home on the 12th of July. So eventually I needed to, to be home or be back to the airport. But even that was flexible. Even that was able to be changed. So on the Camino, I had no schedule. All I needed to do was get up. And the most schedule that I had was in the albergues. If they wanted you out at 8.30, you needed to be out. 
Um, and if they locked the door at 10 or whenever you needed to make sure you were in, but I don't know what program was awake past 10 o'clock, you're exhausted. Yeah. But all I needed to do was walk and find a place to eat, find a cafe, find a place to lay my head the next day or that night. And there was no, I have to do this many miles or I have to do, I have to get to this particular town. I found staying off stage was way nicer, way more calm than staying in the big towns. So off stage, in case anyone listening doesn't know, the stages are presented in the guidebooks. Yeah. So that it says, here are your daily stages. If you don't want to plan, you don't want to think, you just want to follow a plan. And very often those places are the highlights. They've got sites and accommodations and good food, and they tend to be bigger and busier. And so if you get off stage, meaning not staying at those endpoints of the prescribed stages, you can find a calmer, more quiet experience. And you're still walking through the big stages. So for instance, when I went to Bilbao, that was a stage end that I did stay at. And I, that was one of my extra days because I wanted to go to the Guggenheim. I wanted to experience that town a little bit more. And initially I had planned to stay an extra day in San Sebastian because of the food and everything. But when I got in there, it was only my second day. I was already to the point where I was used to the peace of the first two days. It's like, no, I don't want city. I'm not staying here an extra day. Well, that is so luxurious and so wonderful to be able to walk the Camino without a plan. And I know many people, especially on the Frances, are now planning their whole itinerary and booking accommodations. And this is the way we did it in 2005 when I walked. We just, uh, there's, a, there's an albergue in this many kilometers, go there, rather than plot and plan and all of that. So there certainly is some freedom that comes with doing the Camino that way. I, I really enjoyed it. And again, old me, like before Yellowstone, I would have lost my mind if you told me that I was going to need to find my way and I didn't know where I was going and how far. Because prior to Yellowstone, I had to have everything planned. I needed everything laid out for me. I'm so glad that that's not the way I did it because I think it takes a lot of the joy away. Because when I saw people stressing, it was the people that had plans and, oh, I need to, I, I need to go. Oh, I, I, I can't sit here any longer. This is really beautiful, but I have to go. Like, oh, you really don't have to go. Just sit. Or the people that thought, I'm going to stay in this town. And it was an end stage and the albergue was full. So you, you just don't know. You just don't know. Yeah. And so did that ever backfire on you? Did you ever have any, uh, woo, wait a minute, there's no place to stay. Yes. So I met on the very first day, a woman from Belgium, her name was Mickey, and we walked on and off most of the Camino del Norte together. And we separated for, you know, for days here and there because our paces were different. And, you know, she'd want to stay someplace or I'd want to stay someplace, but we were together and we walked into, it was a Sunday. So please note Sundays, everything shuts down. And sometimes it means the restaurants. And sometimes it means the albergues. It know that. Okay. So we went to a town that was off stage, and we had planned on staying there and getting food there. And we walked into 
it was like a ghost town. Nothing was open. And some of these towns, people need to understand that a town in Spain might be five houses and a cafe. That might be the whole town. And then the albergue is maybe a half mile down the path. So if you think, oh, well, everything can't be closed. Yes. Yes, it can on the Norte. It's less common on the Frances route that you would go a day without finding something open. But yeah, it sounds like in these smaller villages on the Norte, you can expect that. Yes. So we got to Rio Seco. Nothing was open. One of the locals actually walked us to the next town that was five kilometers away, which was super sweet and explained where we could stay and where the bars were and a good place to eat. So we went and we had our dinner and we were talking to the female bartender and she's like, oh, well, the albergues are full, but if you want, you can stay with us or stay with me tonight, but you have to wait until the bar is closed. Okay, well, that's fine. But unfortunately, at 11.30, when the bar closed, her husband showed up and was not happy with that situation. So at 11.30 at night, we found out he had no place to stay. The other albergue that would have been available closed its doors at 10, so we couldn't get in. So we ended up walking and staying in a park that night. Okay, how was that? Um, it was terrifying because when we walked out of this town, we had to go back down to towards Rio Seco um, because that's where we would pick up the Norte again. Um, and we got followed by a man in a pickup truck and he passed us once really slow. And I thought, okay, just pay attention. But then he came back again, passed us really slow. And he said something out the window and I didn't understand it, but Nick's like, we need to get off this road. So we walked down a side street, which was pitch dark. There was no houses, there was nothing, but at least from the GPS, it took us where we needed to go, down by the river and then to the Norte. But all of a sudden I saw the truck come back and it started coming down this isolated road. I'm like, look, we need to get back to that road, stand under a streetlight, so, which we did, but then he came back a fourth time. We just pretended we were filming him Okay. And then he, he zoomed off and never came back. So then we went to this park that was behind a church and slept on the ground. How was that sleeping out, outside? Oh, if it wasn't for like just being weary of that person, it would, would have been fine. Mm-hmm. I don't want to scare anybody, but it, things happen. Like the Guardian Seville is really good about keeping track of people. Like when you go to an albergue, they scan your passport and record it so there is like a record of where you're going but i knew of three incidents where women were being harassed sexually just people exposing themselves and things like that i'd like to talk about that if you're willing to because it has come up on the facebook groups that i'm in the women only facebook groups i'm in yeah I think it's important for women to know potential situations they could find themselves in and what to do about them. Yes. So the very first thing that anyone, anyone, especially females, especially, especially females going over by themselves, there is an app called Alert Cop. Put it on your phone because you hit that and you can get the the cops to your location. Okay. Let me make sure I say, we say that so people understand it's called alert cops. Alert cops. 
Okay. So alert cops, we want to make sure we have that downloaded on our phones and we'll need Wi-Fi, right? Or we'll need a data connection to be able to access that. Yes. Okay. But the other thing is just pay attention to your surroundings. And if you see you are going through a remote area and like you're by yourself or, you know, maybe just one or two pilgrims, just walk within just voice of somebody else. I never had a feeling the entire time that I was in any sort of danger, except for that, that one incident, but I never, and I hiked many, many, many miles, hours and hours of time alone, just, just me where I never saw another person and never felt uncomfortable, never felt unsafe. And that was a really unusual situation to be out at night at 11.30 at night without a place to stay. That's not something that happens very often. And so I want to make sure that I mention that for people listening so that that doesn't become a fear point for people. And what you did, you did the right thing in getting someplace bright and acting as if you're filming, whether you were or not. And just making sure that the person knows that you've got eyes on them and they can just stop what they're doing. Yes. And um, like if you see a van sitting on the side of the road and it's been sitting there and some reason there, just don't walk on the driver's side of it. Like mm-hmm. Just like you would do at home, walk on the other side of the street, pay attention. Um, taking, the, taking a picture of somebody's license plate where they can see that you've done it is an amazing tool pretending you're talking to someone and if they approach you say out loud this man is um coming up he just got out of this van and back up and get the license plate but if he thinks they'll leave okay just be your own advocate and even if you're talking to your phone and nobody else even if your phone is flat dead out of battery just pretend pretend that you're talking on your phone and telling someone your circumstances but out of all the time I was there, that's the only incident I ever had. And again, like you said, it's 1130 at night. You're not going to be out at night. That's just unusual. Occasionally in the big cities, you might go out, but pilgrims are tired, like you said before. And we would like to be in bed by eight if that were socially acceptable. But, you know, oh, and many times I was. <laughs> So you mentioned a few other incidents that you heard about. Can you just give sort of a high level, here's what the incident was, and here is a way to address that? So both of them were men exposing themselves to and younger girls that were by themselves. And, and both of them were had their headphones on or earbuds in, so they were not paying attention and they even both of them like you know I just I looked up and all of a sudden you're not walking through narrow winding blind corner paths most of the time yeah so a a good tip is if you are on the trail alone maybe don't have headphones in maybe uh, that's not the right time to get lost in a podcast or lost in music or on the phone but to be aware of your surroundings and keep your eyes open and remain alert. And I really don't want to put fear in anyone because it's not a fearful, I mean, those two incidents, 
yes, that's a terrifying thing to have happen, especially if, if you're young, but it's not something that's happening a lot. Yeah. Interestingly, though, we are hearing more reports. The question I don't know is, are there more incidents or are we hearing about them more because we're on social media? Well, the one thing is social media, I think, is good because it's making people aware. So there was an albergue that I stayed at and the hospital in Atera kind of, and it wasn't just me, there was another, well, Mick was there. And by this point, she had broken her arm. So she needed a lot of help. She still continued with a broken elbow. Amazing. She, she was amazing. <laughs> but um, we just got like a weird, too huggy, too friendly vibe. But both of them shut up. We shut him down pretty fast. <laughs> Great. Three days. But but I just thought maybe he was just like a gregarious person. Mm-hmm. You know, so I didn't, I didn't at the time, I just, it was annoying. It wasn't scary or offensive, you know, just like, okay, no, I'm tired. I'm sweaty. I'm smelly. And I don't want anyone within my personal space right now. Yeah, there'll be, there'll be no hugging. Well, and it's, it's important to note that just like at home, we as women and men as well, we have the right to control who touches us in any way. Yes. And he hugged everybody, men, women. I mean, he was just that. So that's why my guard wasn't up. Okay. Two days later, I read on one of the um, social media, one of the Facebook pages that a woman stayed there and she was excited to go there because she knew that the hospital in Hero is Austrian and she was Austrian and she was looking for, you know, countrymen, you know, talk and whatever. And he actually made advances on her. And even after she said to stop, try it one more time. And then she just packed her things up in the middle of the night and left. Wow. He did the right thing and reported it and they shut him down. Yeah. And that's the thing is to report it because. Spain as a country, the Guardia Civil as an entity, they don't tolerate this behavior. If if they're aware of it, they will shut it down. Yeah, and they did within 48 hours. Great. So the Guardia Civil is, if you are lost, if you have questions, if you don't know what to do, if you get into a town and all the albergues are full, just find the Guardia Civil or the local police. They're very, very willing to help. Mm. I had a pilgrim. She came in. She didn't have any place to stay. Went to the police. The police called the priest. The priest found her place in the church. So the police, unlike some of the stories you hear, the police over in Spain are very helpful. Yeah. Well, it's in it's in everyone's best interest to help and care for the pilgrims. It it would not look quite the way they want it to if pilgrims were not cared for. True. I don't think I'm saying that quite right. It's, it's the same thing that they don't want us to get lost. They don't want us to get off the trail. It's in everyone's best interest that we find our way to Santiago. Yes. And that we do it safely. I had a police officer stop me and say, Camino? And I said, see? And then to thank you, Google Translate, he asked me which row. And I said, Don Norte. And then, no, no. <laughs> you're not on the Norte. So we pulled the map out and I was way off, way off. Wow. 
yeah, again, it's, it's in everyone's best interest that they keep us on the trail. Yes. <laughs> yeah, good. Well, he was doing his job, but he probably also was a kind, caring person. Yeah, most people, I mean, the Spanish people overall were very kind, very considerate, very helpful. There was one area that was not as, and it's amazing when you cross over from one section to the next, like when I left the Basque country and I went into Cantabria, you can tell the architecture is different, the people are different, the pricing is different. Oh, higher or lower? Cantabria is very expensive compared to Basque. Okay. The Basque country, I'm thinking, oh, if this is the way it goes the entire way, I'm not going to spend that much. I really didn't spend what I planned. I didn't spend as much as I planned. And I even got a hotel like the days that I did the extra stay over because you can't stay in an Alberti more than one night. Mm. I got hotels. And the hotel I got, even in Santiago, was 40 euro, which is expensive in my book compared to everything else when you're paying like 8, 12 euro for an Alberti. But it was gorgeous. I wouldn't stay in a 40 euro a night hotel in the US. <laughs> That's not where we would. Yeah, I you wouldn't feel... think you would get a super eight for that. But... No, you wouldn't. You wouldn't. Motel six, well and above that. Yeah. So I want to finish up the conversation about safety because I'm thinking about the single women, solo women walkers who are getting ready for the Camino and they're wondering, well, what do I, what do I do about this? And one of the things that I always recommend to my pilgrims and that I've always done is to find allies. And so one of the things I look for are couples to meet, to talk to, to connect with and have as allies, should I need to appear associated with someone, appear as if I'm not alone. A couple is a good choice. One, you know that it's not, there's not much risk of the man behaving inappropriately when his wife is there. And I hope that doesn't sound you know, as if I'm saying he would, if his wife wasn't there, he would, would behave inappropriately. I'm not saying that, but in my experience, the couples that I've met on the Camino tend to be fairly well aligned and fairly well connected to each other as an entity and therefore represent sort of a solidified front. And so you've got a female ally who, if you have concerns that are unique to women, you can share with her and then the appearance of a male, it's still in many cultures, you appear to be safer and more protected and someone's watching out for you if there's a male in the party. Absolutely. And I'll play that card. I will absolutely play that card. Yeah. And I would, if you're feeling unsafe and there is anyone else around, walk up to them like you know them. And the first thing out of your mouth needs to be, I'm feeling really uncomfortable because of this. Could you please have conversation with me because there's yeah. not a pilgrim out there that will not help you. I think you're right about that. There's not a single person out there. Shop owners are great. Just walk in, but um, somebody that you can like walk out of the town with or just like sit down and, and have a cup of coffee. And that's the other thing too, when you're sitting in a cafe, if you go in and you get your cafe con leche, you have to get <laughs> and you take it out and there's a, another pilgrim sitting by themselves go sit down introduce yourself and that's a great way just to get people on your side and to look like you're with someone yeah 
Definitely. The other thing I'll say about safety is it's, I think my perception and what I've observed is that as I've gotten older, I have received less attention on the Camino. So the first time I walked the Camino, I was 40 and, um, you know, much more of a <laughs> cute young thing than I would, than I am now. And 17 years later, I don't get much attention from local men. When I was 40, men would come see me on a bench, come sit down and strike up a conversation and invite me to that hotel over there. And it was never a threat because I actually learned how to appear indignant in Spanish <laughs> and sort of be like, oh, no, no, my husband won't have that, you know, or, you know, something, something to mention my husband. But I think it's a, a sad fact that younger women are more of a target than women in my age group, mid fifties. And so just as a word of caution for younger women to find your allies and for everyone else to be an ally and to be the person that has the eyes out for the solo female pilgrim and make that connection and make sure that we are all supported and that women all have an ally, all have a friend close by. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I also love parents, people who have children who, because they, they get all parenty, they get all like, mm -mm, don't, don't you mess with my kid. <laughs> don't you mess with my, my, my fabulous young woman here. Yeah. And I get like that too. I don't have children, but I get sort of protective when there's a young woman and, and I see someone, if I see her uncomfortable, I'll, I will go up to someone and stand right next to them and just let them know I'm here if you need anything. And I think that's what we can do for our, our fellow pilgrims. Definitely. Good. I appreciate you bringing that up because really seriously, it has been a topic of conversation this year, unfortunately. Yeah. I've seen it more. I've seen it more since I've been home than I did when I was over there, which I'm glad because well, and that's an interesting phenomenon about the Camino. When you walk the Camino, all you know is what's happening right where you are. You don't know much of what's happening a day ahead or a day behind. Nope. And you certainly don't know, don't know what's happening a week ahead. And there could be a complete alternate universe going on over there. And then add in the all the other routes. So you can read about something on social media and conclude that it's rampant on the Camino when in fact you're on the Camino, you look around and there's none of that going on. Oh, I know. And that's true of the good, the bad, and the ugly, you know, the, the men exposing themselves or this great pilgrim dinner. Well, I didn't have that great pilgrim dinner. What I thought that was part of the package, you know, so every end of the spectrum there. Definitely. So I would love if you would talk with us about the albergue experience, because it sounds like you stayed mostly in albergues. Would you walk through the experience? You, you enter an albergue and what happens? Okay. So they're all a little different, but the basic albergue situation, they have a limited number of beds. So if you, and they open at a specific time. So if you decide you're walking at 2.30, or done walking at 2.30 and the albergue doesn't open until four, you have two choices. You can sit and wait at the albergue to save your place until four, or you can go and get the menu del Zia and then come back after four and get a spot. 
So what I would say is if you see a lot of people, if there's not a lot of options in the town, the Albergue has a limited number of beds, you might want to wait it out. Just go grab a snack, come back and have a drink and a snack and just wait and then go and get your dinner after. Mm-hmm. Um, knowing that your dinner will be at eight o'clock because things are open. Um, but when you get to the albergue, they'll take your passport and your credential. You'll get your stamp. You'll pay. Most of them take cash. Very few took credit cards. And, and that might be because I wasn't relying on my credit cards. Most of them take cash, though. Some of them have set prices. A few of them are donativos. Um, a donativo, so you pay what you think is appropriate. And if you can stay in an albergue for eight euro and they have a kitchen facility that you can use and a bed, then when you're staying at a donativo that is offering you food and has a nicer, cleaner facilities, please pay appropriate, appropriately because that's how they keep those services open. Absolutely. So if you have a guidebook, they'll usually give you the ranges or the pricing for the Albertis. Just keep in mind that every year they go up a little bit. So just be prepared. So some Albertis will have a sheet and a blanket. They have an actual cotton sheet and a blanket on the bed. And they'll have a thin blanket. Um, Usually you'll use your sleep sheet or your sleeping bag. Some albergues have rubber pillows and rubber sheets, and they give you a paper, literally paper fitted sheet and a paper pillowcase. And then you use your own, and no blankets, so you would just use your own sleep sack. So they range the whole spectrum. Some of them are bunk beds. Most of them are bunk beds. Okay. So first people there usually get the lower bunks, and it if you're older, I mean, I just turned 62, and when I hurt my foot and I was all taped up, I would play the, hey, I'm older, I need a, I need a lower bed. <laughs> Sometimes it didn't work. You know, if they're, you know, if they're all taken, you're not going to say, hey, move your things. So back to the bedding that's provided. So there, there is a variety. They keep those pillows and mattresses wrapped up, I think, to keep the bed bugs from moving in. Yes. And the thing is, I want to make sure people know you always need to have something. You need to have either a sleep sack or a sleeping bag because even if they give you a bottom sheet, you still need something between you and the blanket because those blankets are not washed every day in many cases. They're usually wool and I'm allergic to wool. I found a sleep sack perfect. The silk sleep liners are really warm for how thin they are. Yeah, they add 10 degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah, so I I never needed anything more than that. Um, And sometimes it was actually hot. But you want something to cover yourself because, again, you're in bunk beds. And not all are bunk beds. Some of them are just lower beds, but very, very few. Most are bunk beds. And it's a mixed dormitory. They don't have men's and women's. So Mm -hmm. you could you know, be in a room with a bunch of men and, and most people in the Camino don't wear pajamas. They'll wear their underwear to bed and that's it. So you become very accepting, you know, just very unmodest 
<laughs> yeah, people have different levels of modesty and it does tend to shift when you're on the Camino. Oh, absolutely. I mean, some people, mostly you can tell like Americans, they come back from the shower and they're like completely wrapped in a towel or they're completely changed. They'll, they'll be in the shower changing and they'll come out completely dressed. Europeans, they just come out, throw their towel on the bed and, and change right there in the middle and they don't care, which that was one of the beautiful things about Spain. No one cared. There was no body judgment. There was no, so you, you didn't have to feel self-conscious because nobody cared, which was lovely. Um, so the showers, there's usually showers. Some of the showers in the Albertis, you turn the water on and the water stays on until you're done and you turn it off. Some you push a button and you get like 30 seconds of hot water, sometimes 30 seconds of cold water, and then you wet down, lather up, and then rinse. Um, it, it's all different. It's all different, different plumbing. Different plumbing, different, you know, heating systems. And then some of the Albertis will have, you can pay and have a breakfast or a dinner and they'll serve it right there. Or they'll have a communal kitchen where you can go and buy things from the grocery store and come back and prepare your own food. Some of them have pots and pans. Some of them don't. So they may have a kitchen. <laughs> I went into one that had a kitchen. The kitchen consisted of a very small microwave that might have cooked a bag of popcorn. Um, and one, a single burner, but it had no pots and pans. So the moral of that story is always check the kitchen before you go to the shop. Yes. Make sure that it has the gear, make sure it has the, the plates and silverware to serve. If you're making a big salad, make sure there's a bowl. Yes. Yeah. Good. So I, and I stayed in Albuquerque at ran the gamut. Okay. How was the experience for you? What? Did you, did you find yourself the albergues were the perfect experience for you on the Camino? I loved it. I, I absolutely loved it because of the wide variety of experiences. Some were little houses. So I stayed in, in anything from a little house to a renovated church to a pretty modern building with a great kitchen and a huge garden. And you you know, the dinner, they brought the vegetables right into the garden and served and the eggs in the morning came from the chickens. Um, I stayed in a monastery that was built in 952. Wow. Um, that was converted to an Alberti, but still had masses and still had vespers. And yeah, so just such a wide, wide range. I stayed in two monasteries. One of them had like small rooms anywhere from two people, which I stayed, Nick and I stayed in one room with two people, two rooms that had 200 people. It was just row after row after wow. row of bunk beds. Now, when you were walking, did you seek out specific types of albergues or specific experiences, or did you just take what was on offer in each village as you got there? Pretty much took what was on offer the two monasteries I stayed at, I knew I wanted to stay there just for the experience and the, the history of it. And then Guemes, I sought that one out. There were other Albertis, but the one in Guemes had 200 beds, but they were all in individual buildings. So there was no more than eight beds in one mm. building. And 
the history of the property it just really drew me to it because the, the priest that owned it and ran it was also um, a world explorer and he was very much into environmental work and true, true pilgrimage. I mean, the meal was amazing, both the dinner and the breakfast. The rooms were all comfortable. The property was massive. Gardens and sculptures and fruit trees and a great laundry facility. Oh, that's the other thing. Some Albergues have laundry washing machines that you can use. Most have sinks where you can wash clothes out and then you hang them out on the line. But yeah, Guamas was something I sought out too. But those were really the only ones I sought out outside of like, well, this is the only one here. So I guess this is what I'm saying. I think it's really important to to know the variety is out there because we sometimes have these expectations. Again, we watched YouTube videos and see these albergues and see the albergue experience and have an idea of what it's like. But to really understand that there is, every single albergue is different and every experience will be different because they all have different hosts. The hospitaleros are different. Some are volunteers who have walked the Camino and came back to help the pilgrims. Some are families who mm-hmm. run the business. Some are nuns or priests or monks because you're in this Catholic on this Catholic pilgrimage. And then you're with a different group of people every night. And so if you show up, show up at an albergue and all your friends are there, that's going to be one experience. And if you show up at an albergue and you don't know anybody, that's going to be a different experience. Right. Especially if everybody else knows each other. Yeah. Yeah. You're like the odd person out, but then people are like, oh, where are you from? And yeah. you know, there's the stories. And, and when you're walking, especially if you do the entire route, your people will shift. A lot of people come and they do a week at a time and then they come back the next year and pick up where they left off and do the next week because it's all the time they have. Some people are faster, some people are slower. So your your people really rotate quite a bit. Yeah, it's sort of an ebb and flow. It is. And it's very rare, I think, that you finish with the same people you meet on day one. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I I did have that experience, but like I said, Mickey and I separated our ways. But when I found out that she had fallen and broken her arm, I actually, I waited a day. That was one of my days of zero. I waited a day for her to catch up to me. And then we stayed together the rest of the time. Nice. Yeah. We make those decisions as we go. What is most important? Is this relationship most important? Is my timetable most important? Is my forward motion most important? And, and that changes too. Yeah. Because when we first met, she, I mean, I love her. I think we're going to be friends probably for the rest of our lives. But she smokes like a chimney. Okay. Um, and that's just something that I'm super uncomfortable with. Yeah. Um, so I, <laughs> I would distance myself. And then, and I, I kept telling my husband, I'm like, there's a lesson. I know there's a lesson <laughs> yet to be revealed. But she's just such a great person, and she was hiding for or walking for such a good reason. And we just matched. We had such similar life experiences in the past. Well, let's go to the end of your journey. What was it like to walk into Santiago de Compostela? Okay, so after all this time, you know, you're walking, walking. And 
we're almost here. And when you get on your last day, let me back up. The second to the last day where the Frances met the Norte, Mm -hmm. I went from a handful of people walking and calm and quiet to utter chaos. There were hundreds. You couldn't look in any direction without seeing just droves of people. And that was July, the beginning of July. That was July 5th. Okay. Fourth or 5th. Yeah. There were so many people, so loud, so just loud and crowded and such a different vibe. And then the other thing I noticed, so much graffiti, like on the, the markers, like people were writing all over them. Interesting. You didn't see that at all in the Norte. Okay. So it was just like such a culture shock to go from calm and serene and a slow pace to just this noisy, crowded. I mean, there were, there were groups of 50, you know, 50, multiple groups of 50 school kids and they're running and screaming and playing and pushing and, and so many people with just like little day packs and, you know, after, you know, carrying your full backpack the whole time, it's like, I'm tired. I can't, you know, they're looking at you like, what's wrong with you? I'm like, oh, <laughs> you don't understand. <laughs> you don't know where I've been. Yeah. But <laughs> like going into a cafe, you can't just walk in and order something because there's lines. And so again, we, we learn very quickly when you get into a little town, don't stop at the first one because it's where they all stop. And just went to the the next one. It was a lot calmer. And there was vendors all over the place at the side of the Camino selling trinkets and things, which you didn't see at all the whole rest of the time. But then the next day when I got up, it was quiet. And I think everyone just knew it was the last day. So there was no rush. Um, so it was a lot more spaced out and a lot quieter. So when I got to Santiago, first you enter the town and you see the sign, Santiago de Campostela. Yeah, you still have four kilometers to walk. Yeah, you're not there. You have another hour. You're not there. <laughs> and then you're going through city, like more city-ish, more very big city. Or big, yeah. And then it got more crowded, but more city like when I got to the cathedral at first I was and I don't know how to put this I was um I think I was expecting a lot more emotion from me Mm. and I just felt numb I felt like void of emotion and I don't know why and I didn't even go and get my compasella right away we went to the hotel Went to the hotel, took a shower, changed, got something to eat, like a proper meal. And then later on that night, went back to the cathedral. And then it all hit me. Mm. But it was so much more quiet then. Mm-hmm. You know, it was peaceful and just sat there and cried. Mm. You know, and then there was... Um, at 10 o'clock, right behind the cathedral, there's uh, traditional Spanish musicians that come and they play and a big crowd gathered and everybody's singing and dancing and music. And 
then I felt like the celebration part of it. Yeah, so it was really weird. And then the next day I went to get my Compostela. But when I went to get my Compostela, as soon as I presented, I'm getting choked up. As soon as I presented my credentials and asked them if they could put my mother-in-law's name on my Compostela for me, they said, they said no, they print out the way you have to register. But they somebody came up and hand wrote and I walked for my mother-in-law. I lost it. I was crying so hard that I couldn't even talk to people. You know, but they were so kind and so generous. And yeah, when I explained that I had carried her ashes with me. And I really the whole time thought I needed to go to Finisterre with her ashes after that. But somewhere along the line, I just got in my head that it, it was Mushia, not Finisterre. Okay. So they gave me you know, they gave me directions and told me exactly how to get to Lucia. So that was my next day. Wow. Yeah. So all, like the big emotions came when I got that Compostela and had her name. And like all of a sudden I realized what I had done, what I had accomplished and where I enormous, was. Enormous, an enormous accomplishment. Yeah. And when I say an enormous accomplishment, I don't mean it like checking off a, I ran a marathon or this is now no longer on my bucket list, but you walked 800 kilometers physically in the physical world on the Camino, but the journey you took inside, I think was longer and deeper. Oh, way, way longer, way deeper. And the, what surprised me more than anything so the next day I did, I, w- I went and I took a bus to Musia. I did not walk to Musia. I took a bus. <laughs> High five. <laughs> and to be honest, I actually did take a bus for one of the routes because it was all industrial and all on hard pavement. And I had fallen two days before that and messed up my knee. And I'm like, I'm not walking through a chemical factory to, no just to say I did every step. Yeah, no. And I, and I told myself in the beginning that if I needed to take a bus, a cab, a rest day or whatever, it, it didn't lessen my experience. It just made me smart enough to listen to my body. Good. But I took the bus to uh, Lucia and I stayed there a night because I found out that the bus I took out was the last bus. And <laughs> I stayed there, but I had a great experience there and released her ashes. And I felt such, I don't know. I I don't know how to explain it. I just felt such a connection. Like I could finally, finally after over a year, say goodbye to her, but not her memory, you know, like that. Yeah. Sometimes I'd be really lost and, you know, and I'd be like, okay, now where do I go from here, mom? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. There's those people are a part of us. Oh, forever. Yeah. They're they're a part of us and, and how we interact with them has just shifted when they're not in the physical plane. Yeah. I still talk to her all the time. Yeah. My my dad died last year and, and I talk to him all the time. I take him for drives because that was his thing. And uh, he loved driving on windy road. So I'm like, all right, dad, we're going for a drive and love the motion of the car and all that. But yeah, 
those people don't leave us ever, I think. No, I don't think so. Either. Yeah. And I'm glad of that. I, I already miss him enough. I would really miss him if I didn't know he was still there for me to talk to. Yeah, that's such a comfort just knowing. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. We can cry now. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting though. I, I love stories of the pilgrim's office in Santiago and the emotions that come up. We just don't know what's going to come up, but that sort of puts the period at the end of that sentence. And so that has, that has a finality. That's okay. This physical Camino journey is done. I wonder what happens next with the emotional journey or the spiritual journey or the mental journey, you know? It's yeah. just an interesting question. And I think that's why I put it off a day. Mm. I, I think I was avoiding it. Yeah, interesting. I know the Camino changed me so much, just in my perspective. And the, the biggest thing is how you should just live simply. I could have, if my husband and my dog had shown up in Santiago, I think I could have stayed there and lived my entire life just like nomadic like that. You just, all you need to worry about is where you're going to lay your head down and how you get, you know, because I mean, I walked in the rain, I walked in the sun. There wasn't anything that I needed that I didn't have on my back. And that was, that was the biggest thing. Everything I needed, I had with me. It's an incredible feeling, isn't it? It is. Like, yeah. And I came home and I struggled. I, I'm still struggling just sensory overload like there's too much stuff there's too many clothes i've gotten rid of half my closet um like oh my gosh i i lived for six and a half weeks with two sets of clothes and i had to give away the first set of clothes because i lost enough inches that i had to buy a new pair of shorts and a t-shirt but it was enough hand washing mm -hmm. my clothes every night and mm -hmm. You know, figuring out what do I do now that my socks are still wet and they didn't dry overnight. You know, just such a simple way of life. Yeah. And you know, as you're talking, what is what is coming to mind for me is we can prepare and plan and and get ready. And I think people do that to the level that they enjoy it. People who enjoy planning and preparing plan and prepare for the Camino. But no matter how much you plan and prepare, when you get there you're still on the mystery tour and you're still going to have whatever experience you have. And it has to be uniquely yours. Absolutely. And you can't prepare for some things. Like I am a very smart hiker. I make sure I stay hydrated. I made sure I had enough water, made sure I wore my sunscreen all the time. I got severe dehydration and I had salty peanuts and I had olives. Like I had salty snacks as my snacks still lost way too many electrolytes. But here's something else for anyone going to the Camino. Don't just get water every day. Get at least one can of, it's called Aquarius. 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 Yeah. Get at least one can or bottle of Aquarius because it's wonderful for electrolytes. Or you can go to the pharmacy and get um, electrolyte tablets and yeah. use those in your water because you lose so much more than what you think you do. And keep reifying your sunscreen. So good. Yeah, you know, do all the things that you know to do. 
And I think the other lesson here, Kathy, is to trust yourself to figure it out as you go. Yes. And you will. Yeah. Anything else you'd like to talk about? I'm going to go back to the Alberghi and the sheets just so that people aren't surprised. Pillowcases in Spain are open on both sides. So when you fight to get your rubber pillow in that plastic or you know, that paper thing, don't jerk it really hard because it'll fall off the other end and you will start to swear. Just saying. <laughs> I love that. I saved a whole list of things I learned in Spain. Every day I added. It's just so funny. It's one of those things that, that those of us who have had the experience in Spain know and recognize and just giggle at. Yeah. Some of them are open on both ends. And the other thing about pillows in Spain is they're usually more like what we would call in the U.S. a bolster. They're, they're the, the length of the width of the bed. Yeah. We have standard pillows and king-size pillows in the U.S. Theirs are like long king-size pillows, but skinny king-size pillows. Yeah. Yeah. And so I take a king-size pillowcase with me to put on the pillows in the albergues but it's still not the right size, right? So they're the wrong size and the pillowcase is open and they fly through and it's, yeah. How many times does it happen though? Do you, did it happen multiple times or how quickly did you learn not to do that? So the first was a rubber pillow with a paper. So I ended up ripping the paper sheet, trying to get the pillow in. The second one, same situation, but I tugged it and it flew out the other side. So twice. <laughs> Because the first time I, when I ripped it, I didn't realize it was open on the end. Yeah. I'm like, what is this? <laughs> this is the mystery tour discovery plan. Yeah. We learn it as we go. That's why I don't give, uh, there, there's a lot of things I don't talk about on this podcast because I don't want to take away the whole mystery. I don't want, I don't want to cheat anybody out of the process of discovering the Camino and the experience. I want to make sure that you have that experience. So I like to get people to the starting point and then go, okay, go, go. You got this. Good luck. <laughs> and you got, you got this. You had this. You did it. You, you, you did it. You did it. I did it. Yeah. Thanks for sharing your story. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah. There's a lot of good stuff in this. And I think there'll be some good takeaways for people. I did have one more question. Uh, the one thing that has scared me off of the Norte is how long the stages are. Were there any places where you had to do a long stage? There were no buses, no taxis, no, no way around it. Yeah. Yeah. There's two, two for sure that were 30 K with that was your option. And one of them was it rained all day. I got lost. It rained. That was one of my sit on the side of the road and crying, question my existence. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's okay to sit on the road and cry, sit on the side of the road and cry. People understand. Yeah. And you know, there have been a lot of times in my life as an adult in everyday life where I wanted to sit on the side of the road and cry. And it just, I just didn't because it wasn't, it wasn't acceptable, but it's okay to let out that emotion. And to acknowledge that things are hard. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's something that I learned. That 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 whole feeling what you feel and acknowledging what you feel is okay. And not just on the Camino. 
it's okay here. Since I have been back, I have found such a voice. Even my husband has said, I ask you a question, you give me an answer. You're not waiting to hear what I want to do. And, or he'll say, do you want to do that? I'm like, no, I'm not comfortable being around crowds right now. Because it really, it took me a good two weeks to want to be around people mm. in groups. And I really didn't want to talk about my experience. What I'm finding is unless somebody has walked the Camino, they can't even come close to understanding what you're talking about. True. You know, everyone has their own experience and their own level of, of being able to understand another person's experience from the community. You know, because everybody is so unique. Yeah. Whether you go with an intention of trying to find an answer or understanding yourself will be clear, even if you just went because you wanted the challenge of hiking 520 some odd miles, somewhere along the line, you are going to connect deeper with yourself because it's all there is. All there is is you walking and you find that you're all the clutter from the world, like you're scheduling, like what are we gonna have for dinner? Or I have to do this, your chores, but it's gone. So yeah. all you're left with is your thoughts. Thoughts and feelings stripped down. Everything's different. Because the person who goes to the Camino is you. So you're taking you to the Camino. I took me. I didn't take you. I took me. So we're going to have different experiences. Yeah, absolutely. I really appreciate you sharing all this. I appreciate you wanting to hear about it. I just, and reaching out to me, I just, yeah, it's been, it's so funny. I don't know. Did you feel this way? It almost seems like the Camino was a dream. It's like, a, like it was a surreal experience. Like I can't, I know it happened. I know it happened because it changed me so much. I could still feel all the feelings, yeah. but the, it just almost feels like a dream. Uh-huh. And I don't want to wake up. <laughs> there, well, there's a surreal element to it because, well, I don't know if I can say because, but walking the Camino is so so completely engages your five senses and you're experiencing the world. It's almost as as if the volume is turned up on your senses and you're taking in all these sensory stimuli while at the same time you're walking, this repetition of walking, walking, walking. So there's the physical challenge and the physical exhaustion that follows And then your spirit or your emotions, whatever you want to call it, does something. And if we could explain it, we could probably bottle and sell it, but that would not be the same. No. You have to take the steps. You have to go through all the paces. And I think that there is magic in the walking. Oh, absolutely. And your heightened senses for sure. Yeah. And it's not the same as going hiking at home. It's not, it's just not the same. No, I've hiked a couple of times since I've been back and it's just not, it's definitely not the same. You took time out. That's another key component. I think you took time out from your everyday life to say, this is what I'm doing now. This is my priority. This is what I'm going to do every day for the next six weeks. It does something. 
And maybe we shouldn't try to explain it. Maybe we should just encourage people to go have their experience. We definitely need to. Yeah. Thank you again, Kathy. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. All right. Let's stay in touch. I would love to, I would love to hear how this unfolds and unpacks for you. I will let you know. Thank you. Yeah. Any more Caminos in your future, do you think? Um, probably. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.